Here is the latest Higher Summits forecast brought to you by our friends at the Mount Washington Observatory. Weather above treeline in the White Mountains is often wildly different than at our trailheads. Before you hike, check the Higher Summits forecast at mountwashington.org. Weather observers working at the nonprofit Mount Washington Observatory write this elevation-based forecast every morning and afternoon. Search and rescue teams, avalanche experts, and backcountry guides all rely on the Higher Summits forecast to anticipate weather conditions above treeline. You should too. Go to mountwashington.org or text FORECAST to 603-356-2137. Okay, kids, here we go. So this is Friday, May 26th into Saturday, May 27th, Memorial Day weekend, 2023. Uh, Looking through the discussion section of the Higher Summits forecast, it does talk about the snow that um, the Higher Summits received earlier this week, uh, leaving some of the uh, upper alpine regions covered in some ice and uh, some slippery terrain up there. So um, from where I am here in Thornton, we're actually going to hit a freeze tonight uh, down to 32. So that's into Friday morning, like 1 a.m. until about 8 a.m. So you can only imagine what's happening up higher. So what they're really stressing in the discussion is to pack accordingly. Uh, The winds are going to be somewhat elevated and there's just going to be snow patches and uh, frozen runoff from the last few days rime and glare ice as well uh, that have accumulated so just be really careful they suggest adding traction like yak tracks or micro spikes totally cool uh, and that should do the trick so milder air comes in Friday night into Saturday which is a great thing looks like it's going to be a, a fairly clear weekend anyway so all right so Friday mostly in the clear under increasingly cloudy skies slight chance of afternoon rain showers with a high of the mid 30s wind shifting north uh, to northwest at 35 to 50 miles an hour decreasing to 20 to 35 miles per hour wind chill 0 to 10 above rising to 15 to 20 above Friday night in the clear under partly cloudy skies with a low dipping into the lower 30s then rising to upper 30s by sunrise Winds northwest at 20 to 35 miles per hour, decreasing to 15 to 30 miles per hour. Wind chill 15 to 25 above, then rising to 20 to 30 above. And then Saturday, in the clear under partly cloudy skies, high around 50 degrees. Woo! Love it. Northwest shifting west at 15 to 30 miles per hour, decreasing to 15 to 25 miles per hour with a wind chill 20 to 30 above early and then rising. And uh, mind you, this is only up until Saturday, so be sure to check in uh, Saturday afternoon if you're heading out Sunday uh, as well as Monday. All right, have fun, everybody.
Pecker Studio in the great state of New Hampshire. Welcome to the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast, where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Here are your hosts, Mike and Stump. So 107. Charlie, have you ever done a podcast before? Is this your first time? I have not. And if it's okay, I don't know if you guys know how to pronounce my last name. It's pretty, pretty tough. Yeah, yeah. You, you better get you better get. I mean, we always mess up pronunciation, so it may be funny, but you can tell it's it no stuff. It doesn't stuff. matter. It's just a short U. It's it's not butter ba, as a lot of people say. It's just like either booter or butter, some sort of boo boo kind of thing, you know, is perfect. Booter. Yeah. Charlie. Booter ba. Oh, like think about Buddha, like oh. a Buddha, you know. Okay, so Charlie Buddha Baugh. I love it. Oh boy, <laughs> that's as the show goes on, it's going to get worse. Trust me, <laughs> Buddha Baugh. That's actually cool. What's the uh, origin of that? It's German. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No. Yeah. Oh no, my fellow German in the house. I got two German guys on on the phone here. Look out. Um, so, st- so Charlie, we'll introduce you in a minute. But stop. We've been f- we've been focusing on artificial intelligence and yeah. how things are moving so quickly, and like the threat that that could potentially pose to the world. And we've been sleeping mm-hmm. and not paying attention to the greater, more immediate threat of killer whales that are taking down ships in the. I think it's in the Mediterranean. Hmm. Yeah. Have okay. you read about this? I have not. Do tell. Do tell. Yeah. So I got this article and I'll link it in the show notes, but um, killer whales, they're also known as orcas. You know what I'm talking about? Like the, the you go to Florida and it's like the, the free willy type of fish, the big ones. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So apparently, um, and I don't know when this happened, but there was a, uh, a well-known orca that had... I guess been traumatized, either it got hit by a boat or it had been somehow interacted with a boat. And the the orca's name is Gladys and experienced some, some collision with the boat. So she, she decided she was like, I'm going to, I'm going to start attacking boats. And I guess these killer whales are really like smart. So she's Mm -hmm. now training all of the younger calves that are in her pod okay how to attack boats so apparently they've sunk three ships so far and they've attacked even more in the uh, i guess it's off the iberian coast which i don't know where that is but um, so so it was a fluke (laughs) no no it was like it was like it's like a um right over his head (laughs) not oh yeah a fluke whatever but it's almost like a um a super a villain origin story so like yeah. Gladys was just swimming around minding her own business and she hit she got hit by a boat it traumatized her so now she's getting her revenge but she's training all the other orcas on how to attack these ships okay and now it's like this new dangerous thing so it shows that these animals can or these 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 whales can like learn from each other and mm. we may not be able to go in the ocean anymore. Like if they, if they get enough strength, they might be able to take like a cruise ship down. Well, this ties into a story that's three segments up here and it's a, a bison calf is put down after an encounter with a park visitor. So basically a 
person went over to a calf and fudged around with the calf. It was stuck in water or mud or whatever. And then they had to euthanize the thing because it was starting to follow traffic and people. So I, there's a little bit of a correlation there, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Well, we'll cover that. Don't mess with the bisons. Uh, so am I doing the show intro <laughs> now, Stomp, or are we doing our little riff that you wanted to do about the Smasher podcast? <laughs> well, you know, we can skip it. We can talk about it briefly. All right, we were going right. to do a, a brief little Smasher intro instead of Slash. We were going to do Smasher based upon the, uh, the, the smashing windows of cars at Trailheads lately and uh, in relation to our window clings. But we, we'll spare you the... Uh, the the horrible humor and uh but we do want to say thank you to lynn and uh mike and lynn came up with the idea for the window clings to tell people that hey there's nothing in my car leave me alone uh they are in production and they should be done by the end of the week uh so we will keep you updated but uh thanks to everybody that purchased the window clings and uh hopefully it'll be a quiet weekend uh for that nonsense yeah, and Charlie, just in case you're not up to speed, there's been like a rash of like window smashings at trailheads. Um, so people have been actually, yeah. a lot of hikers have been leaving valuables in their vehicles, unfortunately, which does attract people to to try to get in there. And what we've been telling people, and you know, it's, it's basically pick your poison, but we're advising people to uh, keep their doors unlocked, make sure that they don't leave any valuables at trailheads. And uh, in addition to that, we're offering, you know, like any good capitalist, we're taking advantage of the situation by offering our listeners the chance to buy uh, slasher branded um, window clings which are reusable and it just basically just says like car is unlocked no valuables nice you know just just to let people know just because i feel like if you're not putting any valuables in the car and you leave the car unlocked the chances you know maybe you get vandalized but it's better than losing like critical i love it and i saw it on your instagram page i love the decals and i like how you guys have like you know, you're marketing to your core audience as well as thieves, right? It's like, yes, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Cause you know, covering all bases, <laughs> every listener counts, even if you're a felon. So it's good. But, um, why don't I get into the show intro here, stomp, and then we'll move along to some more housekeeping stuff. But, uh, welcome okay. to episode 107 of the sounds like a search and rescue podcast. This week we are joined by Charlie Budabaugh. I hope I got that right. Um, Director of Communications from the Mount Washington Observatory. Uh, so the observatory is a private nonprofit member supported institution with a mission to advance understanding of the natural systems that create Earth's weather and climate. It serves this mission by maintaining a weather station on the summit of Mount Washington, performing weather and climate research, conducting innovative science education programs, and interpreting the heritage of the Mount Washington region. So Charlie will give us some background about the observatory's annual Seek the Peak fundraiser. He'll give us some details about the operations behind the observatory, some details about the upcoming upcoming summit opening, and more. So in addition to Charlie sitting in, uh, Stomp has pulled even more info about uh, places and features in and around Waterville Valley that you, you didn't know about, but we'll have to check out. Uh, so all this, plus we've got hiking, uh, recent hiking updates from Black Mountain and Timber Camp. We've got recent search and rescue news, including uh, two rescues in on Mount Luxalaki and Mount Passa Conway. Uh, so a lot to cover here. Uh, let's get started. I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. Excellent. I, 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 I took away your let's get started, Stomp. I'm sorry. Stole my that. line. Shame. Shame. 
Shame. Hey, just briefly, this is um, this marks seven years that me and Mrs. Stomp have been up here in God's country, New Hampshire. We moved up seven years yeah. Memorial Day weekend, so a little bit of uh, celebration going on this weekend. Wow, that's so crazy. that's one oh seven. Yeah, isn't that wild? Wow, it seems like yeah. yesterday that you guys were talking about moving up here, and then yeah, it's going by quick. Yeah, interesting. Well, congratulations. Any regrets? No regrets, right? Zero. It's been the best best decision ever. Absolutely. All right. Well, we've got a story here, Stomp, that you put together uh, about New England canine. I didn't read this one, so mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to go ahead and uh, cover this. Yeah, just a brief summary. I think it's a uh, just a, a hat tip to New England canine, who listeners may not know, they are a nonprofit search and rescue team who utilize canines that are trained to search uh, primarily for missing persons and whatnot. So uh, it's a nice article and it goes into all their activities and it's uh, put out by New Hampshire Magazine. So give it a good read because they are vital for the search activities that happen here in the state. Actually, it covers uh, Jocelyn Stoll as well, who is pretty much commandeering the uh, the drone program. So they're actually utilizing drone technology as well within the team. Excellent. Um, so next up, Stomp, you pulled a story about, uh, and I saw this on the news the other day. I thought it was really interesting. So uh, brain yeah. implant helps paralyzed man walk again. And from my understanding of this, and you can give me more detail, Stomp, because I think you read it in more, more detail than I did. But my understanding is that there was an implant put into... Um, this gentleman's brain, he's, he's paralyzed. I think he had like a spinal cord injury mm-hmm. and there's also some technology in his, his legs and his spinal cord. And apparently he, he can sort of, he activates the part of his brain that indicates he wants to walk and then it will, it somehow sends a wireless signal to those parts of his body. And it is also regenerating his, his nerves, I think around that area. Is that right? Yeah, more or less. It's called a digital bridge and it's connecting the brain to the spine. And he wears a backpack as well as an antenna headset. And, uh, his ideas are, are processed in the backpack uh, with the technology that's in there, creating spinal stimulation. But um, it's allowing him to stand up for extended periods of time, to ambulate with a walker at the moment, uh, cover 300 feet or more. And uh, they do go into the fact that he's actually um, able to traverse more complex terrain, uh, including stairs. So the reason I, I added this to the list was because uh, there may be hikers in the audience that uh, are suffering from a malady like this as well. So some really neat positive news coming out of all this technology. Yeah, you do wonder, like, are we, with with things moving so quickly, are we like five, 10 years away from people that have suffered, um, you know, spinal cord injuries that never thought they could walk again? Like, could they possibly, you know, this type of technology could put them back in a place where they could actually climb a mountain? Yeah, it looks like we're headed that way pretty quick, which is phenomenal. So good news. Interesting. All right. So next up, we've got uh, Canadian wildfires continue to uh, to blaze. I guess this is in uh, northwest Wyoming. It's flowing into at this point. So most of these wildfires mm-hmm. are in um, Canada at this point. So there's like 
I guess, 27 separate fires in Canada that are um, out of control. I haven't, I haven't really noticed any interesting sunrises aside from that one week period where we had like two or three really spectacular sunrises where you could see the sun. Um, But Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that, that, that smoke will make its way to us eventually. Right. Yeah, well, I, I, it has lessened from what I understand, but I, I really added this to ask Charlie if the observatory has made note of this or is watching it or has noticed anything unusual. It's an interesting story. Yeah, definitely. Our observers have noticed it. Um, and I think uh, did a nice post a couple of weeks ago when we had that kind of first really interesting sunset. You know, we noticed it at our place and then and saw mm-hmm. one of our observers posted about it and made note of uh, how, uh, you know, the smoke had essentially traveled all the way up, you know, to the North Pole, almost to it, and then back down uh, through Canada to us. So, and I think you're kind of seeing some of that happen with some of the changing trends in the jet stream uh, with these kind of more wavy patterns happening and, and carrying, you know, smoke and in, into places that may not have necessarily uh, seen it as much before. Uh, now, when we have uh, we have fires in the White Mountains, does the observatory get involved in any sort of observations for that, or is that mostly done more at the local level? Um, not too much. I think that's mainly local level, but certainly, like our observers are there on the summit with that you, you know great uh, vantage point, and uh, we'll often get called, um, you, you know, by firefighters or you know, fishing game or whomever to kind of, um, gauge, you know, what they're seeing, um, and just get that perspective. Yeah. Hopefully locally it'll be, it'll be pretty quiet. I know was it was a year ago, two years ago, Stomp, we had a couple of fires that were popping up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I can't quite remember. I want to say they were on the Willie Tom Fields, that area there. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, the, the eastern side of the Pemi into yeah. that range. And then earlier than that, there was the Dilly Cliffs fire. Mm-hmm. Hopefully it stays quiet in our area, but that's interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. All right. So next up, Stomp, we've got a story, a Nepali Sherpa. um, So these are the the folks that work (laughs) at uh, Mount Everest and help help guide people up the mountain. So this this one particular Sherpa has summited Mount Everest for the 28th time. Um, Amazing. Yeah, which is pretty crazy. And then and he's 53. He's 53 years old, so he's probably one of the most experienced hikers in the world at this point, I would guess. <laughs> yes. Incredible. Just yeah. to think I'm 54, I'm like, oh. <laughs> I'm having a hard time going up uh, whatever, Moose Lock. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, and then they also do call out in this article that this season they've had 11 deaths so far on Mount Everest. So that's unfortunately a reality of this this um, you know high altitude mountaineering that uh, that's involved with with Mount Everest. So not mm-hmm. not a great uh, story. I think last week we talked about the gentleman that had passed away around Camp Two, and you know it seems like it's not a great season this year. Well, I don't know what the average is year to year. Does anybody here know? Um, I I'm know. not just see. They don't talk about whether that's a, a higher than normal or or about average. I would think it's probably average, perhaps based upon year to year. You know, you have the avalanches and things like that. Uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's a risky pursuit. I think I'll stick to base yeah. camp at, at the at the most. Um, right. 
<laughs> so next up, Stomp, you pulled the follow-up story of a hiker that had been killed in Washington State. So we've covered this story a couple times. This was a situation where um, a gentleman was he was camping with some friends. He decided to break away from the friends. He took his um, puppy for uh, like a side hike, and they were out in the wilderness in uh, Lewis County area in Washington State. And unfortunately, this gentleman was 49 years old, very focused on the outdoors, spent a lot of time in the outdoors. He unfortunately ran into a young couple, 20-year-old 20, 20 um, man and a, his 16-year-old girlfriend. And this 20-year-old was heading off to meet family and friends on a, I think they were hunting for beer in the area. And unfortunately, he, it sounds like the young man mistaked, uh, you know, mistakenly thought that the person hiking in his dog were wildlife and opened fire and killed uh, the 49-year-old the gentleman and his dog. So, uh, yeah. The family of the What's victim like? is is basically saying that the the law enforcement uh, personnel did not investigate properly. Law enforcement and the district attorney basically said that like, well, we don't have enough evidence to prosecute. The district attorney pointed the finger at law enforcement, said, look, they they botched the investigation, and I don't have the evidence I need to charge uh, this young man. Right. Um, so it's now moved into a civil matter. The family is, sure. I think, taking him to court for, um, I guess it didn't even meet the, the, the level of criminal recklessness or negligence to, to prosecute. So, um, they are now, I think, taking it to, uh, to civil court at this point, asking for punitive damages. And, Mm -hmm. uh, they're also going after the County, um, employee that handled the evidence during the investigation. So should be an interesting case. Yeah. Interesting to follow. I guess they're looking at, um, how, uh, you know, an autopsy may have been botched or something to that effect. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's sort of interesting thinking about that because New Hampshire does a pretty good job informing hikers of hunting season and, and, and educating hunters as well regarding the bright orange colors and whatnot to avoid a situation like this, if that's truly the case here. Um, so, I don't know. It doesn't really go into what the people were wearing uh, as they were hiking. But, you know, it's just a little lesson there. Um, When it's hunting season, certainly you want brighter colors. Yeah. And clearly the family feels like there's, you know, there was more to this than a simple accident in there. And I understand like it's, it's a difficult thing to process the loss of a loved one. And sometimes you want to, you know, you want to, you want somebody to answer for it. And when you can't get that justice through the criminal court, then obviously civil, civil pursuits is the next option. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah, That's right. Hey, what's that sound? It must be time for the pop culture segment with Mike and Stomp. All right, Stomp. So we got some pop culture talk here. Um, I think the only thing, the top of mind, obviously, Tina Turner has passed away and Mrs. Stomp is Mm. devastated. She sure is. Yeah, she was a a big hero for uh, my wife and... um, she was dancing around the house last night and crying and singing and just going crazy. Now she wants to name the new kitten Tina. 
Oh, no. <laughs> so my name ideas are out, out the window now. Uh, she considered it, and it's in the running, but I don't know. It's a close race at the moment. Okay. So. All right. Well. But uh, yeah, rest in peace. Uh, did you have a favorite song from her? I did. Um, so yeah. I actually, in my running mix a long time ago, I put, um, you know, that song, Simply the Best or the Best. I put that in my running mix and I listen to that like, because uh, I, I get sick of songs. So I have this running list and I typically will just scroll down to the bottom of it on Spotify. And then a lot of times like that song will pop in and I was running to it this morning and I feel like I, I did like an eight minute mile to Tina Turner, Tina Turner. So thank you, Tina. Wow. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. I love that song. Um we don't need another hero. That's we actually song. watched Thunderdome last night with Mad Max, and uh, that's a crazy movie. Yeah. Uh, but it was it was interesting. How about you, Charlie? And Tina Turner fan? <laughs> oh yeah. Um, you know, it takes me back to riding around in my mom's red Dodge Caravan. Um, but yeah, uh, what's love got to do oh, with yes. it? Uh, yes. Great tune. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. So Stomp. I just picture you and Mrs. Mrs. Stomp on a Friday night cracking open the wine and she just turns on <laughs> private dancer and then uh, I will keep this I we don't want to get an explicit rating, but I could just imagine. So Yeah. 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 So we'll leave it to the imagination. Yeah. Exactly. Theater of the mind. So but we're we're all we're all in mourning with Mrs. Stomp as well. She was a great artist. So Yeah, for sure. Um, next up, Taylor Swift has come and gone. Uh, everybody except my kids went to the concert. So, uh, I did take them to the speak now tour. So I've done my duty 10 years ago, yeah. so I don't have to deal with this anymore. But some you pulled the story of a dad that spent $21,000 on Taylor Swift tickets. Yeah. Family pays 21,000 for four last minute tickets to that show. I read this and I just get a headache because it's so confusing. Uh, a few of my daughters went as well, and I'm assuming that they, they paid a lot as well. But who in their right mind pays $21,000 for four tickets for an artist? I just can't get over that. Yeah, that's a it's lot. It's a shock. I mean, I was, on, a lot. I was on throughout the day, and generally what was happening with those tickets is that they were floating around eleven to $1,200 for obstructed view. And then sure. as you got closer to the concert, you know, they dropped to around 600 or so for the obstructed view. And then you could get mm-hmm. like floor seats and things like that. I think you could score them for about 800 by the time um, the, the show rolled around. Uh, but there was a, you know, there were seats that didn't sell, which is unfortunate. And um, it's, it's, it was quite a, quite a, quite a scenario there, but I think everybody had a good time at, at Gillette stadium. Yeah, uh, apparently still some shenanigans, though. I mean, what is StubHub? I'm a little little out of the loop here, but StubHub couldn't fulfill the original order for $1,400 for these tickets. So I don't know what's going on, but there's got to be some weird things happening between Ticketmaster and all these other companies that are getting these resells. Strange. Couldn't pay me enough. You can pay me 21K to go to a show like that. Yeah, well, I almost think what they should be doing is um, doing a no transfer on the tickets or, or either that or like if you want to do transfer tickets, like just add such an, a, a horrendous surcharge that it's not worth it. But yeah, uh, somebody's making money somewhere. Yeah. It's very strange. Yeah. But anyway, um, Stomp, so yeah. I think we are going to, do we have to do any advertisers now or do we want to get right into no. the segment with Charlie? Let's get to it. Slasher's Hiking Topic of the Week. 
right, so we're going a little out of order today, so we'll get back to, we'll talk about recent hikes and, and some other topics um, after we wrap with Charlie. But Charlie, we want to get you on here. We're very excited to um, to welcome you. So you're the Director of Communications at the Mount Washington Observatory. Can you give us a little bit about your background? And I'm particularly interested in your career history and how you ended up in this role. We always hear from people that are sort of talking about interest in, interest in working in the outdoor industry, but they don't know how to get their foot in the door. So can you give us a little bit of background on yourself? Yeah, sure. I can try to be helpful. And that's a great question. Uh, we got such a thriving, exciting outdoor uh, scene going on up here in, uh, you know, New Hampshire and the North Country, and of course, uh, on the Maine side too, and the uh, the National Forest. But uh, it's, it's interesting that he just celebrated his seven-year anniversary. Literally, that's kind of tracking with our timeline too. Uh, we moved up to um, Maine about seven years ago as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I've, I have an English degree <laughs> um, <laughs> and spent some time teaching, uh, spent some time as a journalist, uh, spent some time, probably too much time in marketing in the private sector. Uh, but I learned a lot uh, in that process always wanted to work for an outdoor focused or an environmentally focused nonprofit. Um, and so, yeah, I found out about a job at Mount Washington observatory back in 2020, uh, right in the midst of COVID, um, and applied. And it was a bit of a jump for me, uh, kind of went into a development role. So some fundraising work, um, but just fell in love with the organization, which has so many layers and so many stories and such a great rich history, um, and here I am uh, after a, a, about two and a half years. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I snooped your, so I'm a recruiter by trade, so I snooped your LinkedIn account. And one of the things that stands out to me, so for people that are listening, I think, and I say this to people all the time, and it's, it is difficult when you're in the beginning of your career, but when you start to get some experience and you're, you know, a couple of years into your career, if you're looking for a new opportunity, I think people tend to, with their career sort of, feel like my next move has to be like a direct path from where I am now to my next job. And I think that that's something that people sort of, they, they trap themselves in a prison that they don't need to be trapped into. And you can, you can change industry focus. You can change, you know, the, the core piece of your job and move around a little bit. Like you don't need to just like lock yourself. Like if you were in a marketing background and you didn't want to do a hundred percent focus and marketing, you can, you can move around a little bit inside your, your skill set. Absolutely. That's a great point. And I mean, I think to your question around, you know, kind of breaking into, you know, a career in the outdoors, I I think you're right. You know, sometimes we have to kind of take a jump, take a lateral move, um, you know, take a chance, you know, maybe take a little bit lower pay, um, but to live and work, you know, a place that you love, um, I think it's definitely worth it to do that. And I think it's just important, you know, People are going to get, you know, no for an answer oftentimes. And you know this as a recruiter, I'm sure, Mike. Uh, but don't be discouraged by it. You know, oftentimes, you know, hiring is something that's kind of based on circumstances and timing. Um, and so just, you know, keep at it. Um, but I think if you're, you know, looking to kind of do something that, that you really love and be surrounded by, uh, you, you know, what you want to do in the outdoors, whether it's in, you know, human-powered sports or, you know, weather like I am or climate, you um, 
or whatever. Um, there's definitely lots of opportunity. Yeah, excellent. So, Charlie, tell us a little bit about the the observatory function and the history. And you know, from my perspective, like I've watched a couple of videos today just in preparation for this. And one of the things I find fascinating is it's like every hour on the hour, you've got somebody going out and collecting um, weather data. That's you know, cons- and you're con- doing it consistently with the same tools and calibration over time. It's sort of like that show Lost Stomp where you have to press the numbers every hour or the the island explodes. It's sort of like the same methodology, but can you talk a little bit about, right, um, right. you know, how long the observatory has been functioning this way and a little bit about sort of what, what goes on up there at a high level. And we'll get into some more detail, but just if you could give us your, your sort of high level view. Yeah, sure. So started in 1932 with Mount Washington Observatory with uh, four founders, um, and it's been going ever since with observations every hour, uh, even measuring temperature with the really same exact instrument. It's called a sling psychrometer. And so that consistency of data over time has built a really valuable climatology or climate record to really kind of understand. And it's valuable to researchers to be able to see that, you know, consistent data set. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's also a story of partnership, which is really exciting. You know, from, you know, the Mount Washington Auto Road, the Cog Railway, um, really helping us get our start. You know, our first home was in the stage office for the Auto Road. Um, Mm. And then, uh, you know, the Cog Railway then came along and built the observatory's first permanent home, which was year round. Um, And we stayed there until about 1980 when the Sherman Adams building was built. Uh, and that's the uh, the building that we're now housed in. And that's, of course, owned by New Hampshire State Park. So, again, another partner of ours that um, really helps us in terms of, you know, being on the mountain, staying on the mountain, keeping the building uh, up to uh, maintenance and whatnot. Um, and uh, so Mount Washington State Park owns the summit. Um, you know, we lease our space and that building. Um, and we've got, you know, the instrument tower um, that goes up and has you know, anemometers measuring wind, our observers go outside and measure temperature, look at cloud activity, look at visibility. Um, They do educational programs and research as well. And of course, they're forecasting, uh, which you guys have been so kind to really support us with in terms Mm -hmm. of getting the word out about the Higher Summits forecast, which is a 48-hour forecast that's really very specific to the Higher Summits and the presidential range because the weather's so variability at that elevation. So, really helps people understand what's going to be happening above tree line. Interesting. Right. And then um, Mount Washington has been, you know, they've had a couple of key historical events around um, wind speed, air temperature, wind chill. And I know one, ha- you know, one happened recently this, this winter with the wind chill, but can you talk a little bit about some of those big milestones that the observatory has been part of? Sure. Yeah. So it's interesting, you know, 1934. So two years after our, our founding uh, it was on April 12th when the 231-mile-per-hour world record wind was measured mm-hmm. uh, with an anemometer uh, by our, our observers at the summit. Uh, and that definitely, I think, brought a lot of um, notoriety, recognition, and importance to the work that our you know observers were doing at the time. Um, and uh, it, it was interesting that same year, uh, the negative 47 degrees Fahrenheit air temperature was measured. And then it, it took, uh, let's see, I think 89 years until this past February when that was measured again, uh, again with the same instrument. So negative um, 47 Fahrenheit is our coldest air temperature. And as you mentioned, Mike, we also um, recorded 
or reported, I should say, uh, a negative 109 wind chill back on February 3rd or 4th yeah. of, of this year. We remember. Um, that was pretty yeah. intense. Yeah. Wow. There was a 171 mile per hour wind that was measured in 2019. Um, so that's a more recent, you know, really high wind speed that was that was measured as well. Wow. That is interesting. And then, so over time, yeah. you've been able to, the observatory has been able to identify some climate trends. And I know that, you know, you have observed that the, the snow season is shortening and you've seen a, a little bit of an increase in air temperature um, over time. Is there any other like significant um, research that the, the observatory has been involved with? Or like, can you talk a little bit about what, um, you know, what the larger climate community does as far as relying on the, the data from the observatory. Sure. Sure. And I should have said this earlier, but I just definitely want to give uh, recognition to our weather observers who are living at the summit. And I don't, I don't live at the summit. I get there as much as I can and have, you know, spent, you know, many nights kind of talking with our observers and our director of research, who's uh, Jay Broccolo and learned a lot and talking with him. But yeah, I think, you know, we're definitely noticing some changing trends and, and doing continued research as those questions come up uh, is probably the most important point. But um, I think, you know, we're seeing the sort of average air temperature warming very gradually, it, it, and particularly within the last 10 to 15 years. Um, we're seeing an earlier arrival of, of spring, um, and we're also seeing about a, a quarter of degree Per decade increase in average temperature in, in spring it, it, as well. So spring seems to be kind of like a focus season that we're really looking at. Um, you know, definitely losing a, a little bit of the snowpack, but it's interesting because, you know, this morning they got another inch and a half of snow, um, negative two uh, wind chill. So it's really interesting to look at. I think one of the other trends that they're seeing is what we're calling rain on snow events, where it's it's happening more frequently, where you know, you'll get, um, you know, liquid precipitation falling on frozen precipitation. And this is, of course, like making, you know, the job of the folks over at the Mount Washington Avalanche Center um, even more important and challenging, too, because they're just seeing that stability of the snowpack is, is decreasing a little bit. Um, so definitely looking in, into our research into and doing more research into, you know, understanding what's also sometimes called winter whiplash, where you're you're in winter um, you know, for a stretch of time. And then all of a sudden you have a significant warm up, which we saw in the end of January this year. Mm -hmm. um, and then all of a sudden that just absolute plummet down to record cold temperatures in early February. So definitely some swings are taking place. Uh, yeah, you're right. Cause I, rem I remember like posting a couple of comments in like January saying like, we need more snow. And then pretty quickly it, it did follow up, but it's been a little bit of a, um, up and down season. And I always get up to the Mount Washington area um, on Memorial Day weekend. So I'm heading up to Maine tomorrow and then probably hiking Mount Washington on Saturday morning. So um, what I've noticed over the years is, yeah, there's, it's hit or miss. Sometimes you can't even get up there because there's snow still. And, you know, we've had a couple of seasons where I remember it was no problem and it wasn't that much snow. So we'll see how it is on Saturday when I get up there. Absolutely. We had, I mean, that interesting situation earlier this month too, right? Where, um, you know, there was like three inches of rain, uh, which created some washout for the auto road, created a little, a little havoc for them. Um, but, you know, they were just incredible in terms of responding quickly uh, and getting the, 
the road repaired and were able to open on time like May 13th, which was really great for us. And that was followed by like, I think it was 12 inches of snow or something. So they got this washout, they got buried in snow. <laughs> so it's, it's definitely an interesting uh, um, enterprise to try to open, open the mountain, you know, you know, for the summer. The warm yeah, season. can you talk about that? So um, this coming weekend, the Summit Building's opening, right? Yeah, yeah, it's supposed to be open. I just talked to Patrick Hummel today. He's the uh, park supervisor up at Mount Washington State Park. Um, and yeah, they are planning to be open tomorrow at 9 a.m. And I know that it's been a lot of work in the lead up to that. Yeah, yeah. There's been years where I've gone, um, I, I don't know um, if it was the very first day, but I tend to get up there on the Saturday of Memorial Day. And like I've walked in at like nine o'clock in the morning and had a cup of coffee and been like, I'm like, I think I'm the first person here before the, the cog gets up there and everything. So nice. It's fun. <laughs> but uh, can you talk a little bit about the work that goes into it? Like, do you, I know you've talked a little bit about, so you've got to coordinate with the cog, you've coordinate with the auto roads, you coordinate with the New Hampshire state park representatives. How is the planning and communication handled amongst the various stakeholders tied to the summit? Sure. Absolutely. I, I, you know, there's a lot of communication that's happening on a day-to-day basis. I mean, even with the auto road washout that happened earlier this month, um, you know, Patrick up at state park gave us a call. Um, you know, we both got in touch with the cog railway. We knew we weren't going to be able to do our shift chains on the auto road, which was the next day. We always take the auto road for our shift change, which happens every Wednesday. So our observers coming up, um, you know, relieve those who are heaven on the summit for a week. Uh, they have a meeting and then, you know, the obs- other observers go down um, for a week off the mountain. But yeah, we were able to contact the Cog Railway, uh, reroute our shift change over to the other side of the mountain. They helped us get up with like, it was really like a, just a, a special trip that they took for us with this giant snowblower on the front of the train. It was pretty amazing <laughs> uh, to clear the tracks um, up above tree line. But um yeah, I mean, you know, the state park building, you know, serves an important public safety role. Um, just tons of work as they kind of get their systems up and running for the season, and including, you know, water systems, bathrooms and all that good stuff. And, you know, hikers definitely rely on that, you know, to, you know, replenish their water supply, take a rest. Sometimes, sometimes they have a bump or bruise they need to get, you know, some first aid for. Um, just really get some respite. Um, I mean, it's important, I think, to note that the state park building closes at 6 p.m., so hikers shouldn't rely on it, you know, as as they should really treat Mount Washington Summit as if it's any other summit in the White Mountains, right, without kind of an improved structure. But it's there when it's open, and it's definitely an important place to be. But um, And then they definitely serve as an important search and rescue hub, uh, you know, when incidents do happen. Um, but yeah, just a lot of work that the state park does to maintain the building. Um, and then, you know, the auto road, uh, the state park and the observatory are working together constantly throughout the winter on transportation in terms of making sure our observers are, are getting to the summit and keeping that weather record, that weather and climate record consistent and continuous. Yeah, yeah. And I definitely want to dive into the more, more details about uh, sort of a day in the life of the, the weather observers. But before we get into that, I did want to talk about the, the the biggest fundraiser for the observatory. So I think it's your primary fundraiser. So Seek the Peak is going to be on Saturday, July 15th, which from I, my understanding is this is the best way to support the Mount Washington Observatory to help sustain, sustain education and scientific programs. Can you talk a little bit about Seek the Peak and uh, highlight some of the, the, the events that go on around the uh, Seek the Peak? 
Yeah, sure. Yeah, this is a vital fundraiser for us. It's definitely a, a great way to support the observatory in addition to, you know, just becoming a member over at mountwashington.org. But this is our 23rd annual Seek the Peak. Uh, so it's been going on for a while. It's a hike-a-thon. Um, and so essentially, um, you, you know, anyone, any hiker of any ability level, you don't have to hike Mount Washington. Um, you sign up at seekthepeak.org. Um, you get a personal fundraising page. You can send that link and share it with, you know, friends, family, colleagues, you know, really ask for, that, for them to support your hike, whether you're going to, you know, hike up Tuckerman Ravine Trail or if you just want to do, you know, a more, um, you know, low key, you know, hike up uh, Boulder Loop or whatever it is that you want to do. Um, but all of that supports the observatory. So, uh, and as our hikers, our participants raise funds, uh, they earn gear. Uh, so they get, you know, like an awesome locally designed t-shirt designed here in the Mount Washington Valley, Cotopaxi backpack. They get entered into a, a, an awesome gear raffle that's supported by uh, the Get Outside Tour. Um, WMWV is going to be there. This is all happening then. So the, yeah, the, the sort of culminating event is July 15th at our Apre hike party. Okay. So most people come and hike either Friday or Saturday, um, but you can really hike anytime. It's not kind of like, you know, strict as far as like when and where you can hike, but it's a great gathering of the outdoor community. So people uh, will join us um, at the Apre hike party from 3 to 6 p.m. on July 15th. That's at Great Glen Trails, just at the base of the Mount Washington Auto Road. We'll have mm-hmm. live music, food trucks. Uh, as I said, WMWV, Roy Prescott will be there, uh, the skiing DJ. Um, oh, nice. And... Uh, should be a good time. Yeah. yeah, and I saw that you guys are doing a. Uh, so if you're if you're interested in this, but you uh, don't have anybody that can make it, or you're just looking to get involved, and and you you know don't have anybody in the area, say you just moved up to New Hampshire and you want to get involved, you have a new process where you can sign up for hike and make friends program, and then actually you also have these pace labels, which is interesting. Stomp. So they have. The Gentle Breeze Hikers, which I'm assuming are the slower hikers. You've got the Near, near Gale Hikers, which are probably the middle of the road. And then you've got the Hurricane Force Hikers, which are the Speed Demons. Right. So you can oh, sign up for great. you know whatever pace makes sense for you. If you don't have a group that you're involved with, you can go on to the Seek the Peak event page and look at the Hike and Make Friends section. Huh, that's yeah, cool. that's so awesome. Thank you so much. Um, it's a great... Great summary. And yeah, just one more note that the Appalachian Mountain Club will be there Saturday morning at Peakham Notch Visitor Center to help people also like look at maps, you know, define a route that it's right for them. Um, and when you register, you also get um, a voucher for a food truck at the Apri Hark Party. Hike, Apri Hike Party. Okay, yeah, that's a nice. tough one. And then you, so you're, you've done a lot of hiking in, in and around the White Mountains, but um, you said you're going to be doing the, the hike, you're going to do a hike up Tuckerman for the first time? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. My first summit in Mount Washington, planning that for, uh, for July. Wow. Oh, yeah. cool. You feel prepared? Um, I think I still have a bit of, uh, a, a, you know, fitness to, to kind of take care of, um, and, and definitely to kind of upskill a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I've done a lot of hiking, um, but I, I definitely need to train up a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Do you know, um, and you probably haven't got there yet, but like, so you're going to go up the head wall on Tuckerman and then when you get to Tuckerman, are you going to continue up the cone on Tuckerman or are you going to wrap around and go up? Uh, what is that? Like Crawford path? Lionhead? Crawford oh, path, oh yeah. right. You know, I'm not sure, but I, if you guys have any advice for me, I would 
definitely take it. I'd say, I mean, if you're feeling okay, I'd keep going up the, the, the summit cone. The problem with like, once you get above the head wall, the trail going up Tuckerman is like, it, it, there's a lot of like big boulders. So it does get like, it, it gets more difficult than actually the head wall, in my opinion, just because it's like going across all these big boulders. So sometimes it is easier to sort of like stay you know, head towards Monroe and then come up that, that Crawford path section. But it really, it's a more gentle climb, I guess, but I don't know. Stomp. What do you think? You just go straight up the gullet. I would just stick to the car, Charlie, just go up on a road. You're good to go. Don't worry about the hiking thing. (laughs) (laughs) We'll drive you up. Um, Drive up and hike down, maybe, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Somebody shut off his microphone. So, Um, but that'd be good. Are you going with a big crew? Um, I don't think so. I think I'll probably, you know, either go with one friend, um, definitely somebody else. Uh, And, you know, just being immersed in the observatory, I, I feel like. I know the tools and of course looking at, you know, the hike safe, you know, 10 essentials and all that good stuff. So, um, but yeah, I think I'll have a companion. Yeah, no, that'll be great. And then that's a great trail. And the, the nice thing about that is you're, you're never going to be by yourself, which is good. Nice. So, nice. Excellent. So Charlie, let's talk about the weather observers. How many uh, workers are typically, how many workers and volunteers are typically up on the summit at any one point in time? Sure. Yeah. So we typically have three weather observers at any given point. So two daytime observers and then one night observer who's up alone all night um, for 12 hours, typically from like 5.30 p.m. to 5.30 a.m. That night observer is important because they write the morning higher summits forecast, which is really kind of like the authoritative Mm -hmm. forecast for the day or the next 48 hours. I should say they're not always alone. You know, they have Nimbus the cat uh, to keep them company, which is great. Um, and then, yeah, we, we usually always have two volunteers on each shift. And that shift, again, is from Wednesday to Wednesday. Um, and then we always typically have an intern as well. And our intern program is really important. It's usually, you know, somebody who's either finishing their undergraduate or just finished either in, you know, meteorology, climate studies, sometimes geology or engineering, too. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a great staff. And then the state park folks are there too, um, you know, helping to maintain the building. And oftentimes there's, you know, kind of a family style. There's always a family style dinner in the evening. Uh, it's pretty much at 6 p.m. sharp. And our volunteers who many of who have actually been volunteering with us for many years, sometimes decades, um, usually have some great unique recipes and it's a little different cooking um, at 6288 feet in elevation too so uh, they they help out and, and make sure that our observers are are well nourished and do you find oh, that with the, with the observers is this tend to be that they have long tenures and they stay in the role for a long time or is it sort of a stop in their their career that's a really good question I think that um, it has often been something where it's like a two to three year tenure. Um, many of our observers, you know, grew up, you know, reading meteorology textbooks and hearing about the observatory and kind of developed a dream. Hey, that would be so cool to work there at the home of the world's worst weather. Um, and so, you know, it's definitely an aspiration and they, they get here and, you know, it's a week on week off, um, consistently. So sometimes I think it can make it a challenge to, you know, do things like start a family. Um, but, um, I think that we're seeing, um, with some of our, our, our real kind of like recent team 
is building some longer tenure um, and hiring some folks who are really interested in doing the research and kind of looking at, um, you know, some of the trends at a kind of a longer term. And, and of course, you know how research goes. It's like, you know, you finish your research project, quote, finish, and then there's more questions and there's more opportunity to look deeper into, you know, things like how does the temperature change along, you know, the gradient or topography as, as elevation increases. And all of these questions just beget more questions and so I, I think we're starting to see a little longer tenure uh, in some of our observers, which is really exciting. Got it. And do you know, and you may not know this, but um, if just for our younger listeners that sort of haven't started their college search yet or anything like that, is there, and I would assume that there's many great meteorology programs and associated programs, but do you have a particular like um, number of colleges and universities where you've seen interns and, and, and people come from, or is it just a wide variety of schools? It's pretty wide variety. You know, Plymouth State's got a great program. Uh, Penn State's got a great program. Um, we've recently started working with Howard University and Jackson State. Yep. Um, so some historically black universities, which is absolutely awesome. And so uh, we've got an internship program with them um, and really starting to kind of partner uh, in that regard. Um, but yeah, it definitely, I would say, runs the gamut in terms of folks coming from, you know, Virginia Tech, um, various universities around the country. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Wow. That's, that's great to hear. Um, yeah, I always get scared that it's going to be like MIT and Harvard and those schools getting, you know, the great schools, but sometimes they can be so hard to get into that. It's like, yeah. but it's a wide variety. It sounds like, um, can you talk about the volunteer, um, program? And, and it, so it sounds like there's like, what, like four or five volunteers that are up there at any point in time. Yeah. Yeah. Typically it's, it's typically it's two volunteers. I think sometimes three. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, but there's a, a forum on our website on mountwashington.org where people can submit an application. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, the summit is a place where we, we really look for people who have an interest in weather, uh, an interest in the outdoors, um, you know, can really work well together with our observers. Um, it's not really, you know, that much criteria involved. It's just really, you know, people who are enthusiastic about the work that we do. Um, so anybody can submit an application, um, and you know if you're accepted, you get to live uh, on the summit for a week, uh, which is pretty cool. Wow, that's awesome! Um, yeah. And then can you talk? Mike's, Mike's a good cook; he can sign up. I am a good cook. I am a good cook. So <laughs> I did actually. I was hiking. I went up. I was in, up in the summit in like February or early March, and uh, there was a nice lady outside walking around. And uh, I went over to her to just say hello, good morning. And she was she was there volunteering. And she, that was one of the things she said. She's like, you know, I'm known as a very good cook. So I think that they've asked me back multiple times. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Which was great. Um, so what about the education uh, and summer adventure programs, Charlie? Though, can you talk a little bit about them? Yeah, sure. So uh, we... After the, the COVID years, uh, this past winter, we were able to resume our EduTrips, uh, which is a one-night experience. Uh, it came back this past winter as a Monday to Tuesday. And so um, people uh, are able to sign up for that, uh, support the observatory in the process, which is great, uh, come up to the summit, ride the snowcat, um, and stay for the night and really experience the weather and, you know, I was actually up for one uh, in, I think it was uh, uh, mid-February or so. And it's just a great experience where, you know, you get that sort of 
24 to 30 hours or so, you often get to experience just the, you know, the wide range of weather that Mount Washington experiences. Uh, we had like a pretty warm day when we went up on a Monday. Um, and then like a low pressure system came in and we had some decent snowfall. And the next morning, the visibility was down to, you know, 25 or 30 feet. Um, and there's always uh, a program that's involved. So whether it's, you know, understanding, you know, mountain weather, um, looking at, you know, climate, um, maybe it's, um, you know, backcountry uh, hiking and, um, you know, just developing those skills. So just a, a great opportunity to get to the observatory, you know, learn some new material and, and hang out. And then we also have Arctic Wednesdays, which um, is, a, is an opportunity for teachers to to come up to the summit just for the day um, and kind of learn about our work. They connect live with their, student, their students, um, you know, via, uh, you know, Zoom, uh, just in their classroom and kind of uh, really get to learn a lot and then take that back to their their classrooms. And then we have, you know, virtual programs, including our Science in the Mountains uh, program. We do um, other distance learning programs with area schools. Um, a really cool thing that's just starting actually tomorrow is uh, I think it's Groveton Middle School out of northern New Hampshire is taking a field trip up on the COG to the summit to visit our weather station. We were able to partner with the COG Railway um, and, <laughs> you know, really looking. That's one of the things that our executive director, Drew Bush, is is very intent on is increasing access to the summit and making sure that kids you know from all over new hampshire are able to have an experience um and and see the weather station see what the summit of mount washington is like that definitely beats the old bus ride uh from lynn english high school to the museum of science <laughs> i wouldn't treat that any day <laughs> yeah yeah and it's it's great to hear that because uh, a lot of times like we're in the hiking community charlie and people tend to be purists they're like oh it's it's an abomination that there's buildings on top of the summit and you know and it's it is what it is like you can't really go back in time and change history and it's good to know that like we're giving you're giving back Back to students and it gives the, the thing about having the access to a place like Mount Washington is that it does expose people that might not otherwise ever get the chance to go on a mountain. They get to experience what it's like and it might plant that seed for them to start getting curious to say like, okay, now I'm going to go and try to hike something that is a little bit more remote. So it's not all it's not all just about, um, you know, leave no trace and that type of thing. And we talk about this a lot around, you know, the, the, the work that, you know, the various stakeholders on the summit do to support search and rescue when that, when it's needed. So it's great to know that the you know, students are getting a chance to be exposed to this. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to say that, you, you know, with the COVID years after, you know, now that we're out of that, those years, we really had to take a lot of our education programs virtual. And, you know, we had been doing that for a little while, so it worked well. But now that we're beyond that, we're really going to be investing heavily in our educational programs. And uh, we're going to be hiring somebody, uh, an education coordinator pretty soon here, um, and really, you know, get out into, um, you know, after school programs, uh, enrichment field trips, as I said, and we kind of did a road show um, earlier uh, this year and went around to area schools and there's just a lot of demand uh, from administrators for us to come in and, and deliver programs and really help people understand, you know, the unique weather that Mount Washington experiences. So it's, it's an exciting time. Yeah, yeah, it's it's great to hear that. Um, 
And then Charlie, on the I did want to talk a little bit about sort of the data tools that are available for the public. So you talked about the Higher Summit forecast. Um, there is also on the website there's there's live weather cameras. There is um, a feature that you offer for people to get automated text updates on the forecast as well as well as the current conditions on the summit. Can you talk a little bit about um, you know some of the other data tools that are available? I know Stomp always talks about the Mesonet system and the You've got a variety of different research projects that you've highlighted as well on the website. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think it's just important that, you know, we all, you know, kind of see hiking in the White Mountains and, and you guys can vouch for this as, you know, something where we all just really need to take care of ourselves and, and look ahead at, at what's happening. And so we've got the 48-hour forecast, as you said, Mike, at mountwashington.org, and that's our higher summits forecast and reading the forecast discussion is a really important part because it not only tells, you know, what our observers um, think will happen, but also what could potentially happen. So some of the sort of unforeseen things that, you know, weather dynamics can create based on whatever system is approaching us so that, you know, when people get above tree line, you know, they don't find they're completely in the midst of a, you know, a heavy storm unexpectedly. So the forecast is key. As you said, um, we offer this automated text service now. So if you text to uh, 603-356-2137, uh, that's our main number. Um, you text that number, you, you can text weather, you can text forecast, and you get an you know an immediate reply with a synopsis of what the conditions are at the, sum, at, the summit at that time and then also what the forecast is. Um, and that's nice. a little better when you're like, you know um, – maybe out in the back country a little bit, you know, your, your signal is a little low, but oftentimes the text can go through. So you could at least get, you know, kind of a brief version of, of the forecast. Um, and then, yeah, the weather cams are great. There's a weather camera that's at the top of wildcat that looks at the kind of Eastern flank of Mount Washington. There's a camera that is, um, uh, let's see, looking out over our observation deck. Um, and then there's also one that's kind of right on the tower, which is one of our newest cameras, um, that's really super clear. And, you know, so if you're just kind of getting an, a sense for what's going on at the summit, if you're just curious, those are a great way to kind of get a window to Mount Washington. But also, mm. you know, looking at that wildcat camera, I think that's a really a good, good way to kind of get a sense for what the conditions are going to be. Yeah, no, that's, that's good to know. And I don't think to look on those cameras at the last time I looked at the cameras, it was a big, like, um, the day that the, I think it was like maybe the afternoon before the windshield event, somebody had actually summited and hiked. So people were aghast that somebody had actually made it up to the summit in that cold weather. And he came walking by on the, the webcam, but, uh, I go on there occasionally, (laughs) but it's been a while. So I'm going to check that out. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the general guidelines around search and rescue. So um, Stomp and I have talked about a number of cases where um, the COG or, or the, the the summit staff have had to step in and help with search and rescue. But generally, you touched on this before, generally you should assume that uh, Mount Washington is no different than any other summit and that you can't rely on any of the personnel to sort of rescue you're not going to be let inside the buildings or anything like that because it just is not something that's feasible uh for anybody but um can can you sort of expand on that a little bit around search and rescue um policies yeah absolutely and just have to give so much credit to uh you know the white mountain national forest uh new hampshire fish and game uh the appalachian mountain club and then all the you know mountain rescue service and volunteer organizations that you know just 
do so much, um, you know, to really help out when incidents happen and, and they do happen. Right. And sometimes it's not somebody's negligence. Somebody just slips and breaks an ankle and, you know, needs support, needs help. Um, but yeah, definitely important to assume that it's going to take a while, uh, based on the conditions for, you know, volunteer rescuers and, and others to, to get to you. Um, it's, uh, you know, I think just talking to, um, the, um, fish and game organization a little bit last year i think it's something like on average of you know 200 incidents or so per year in the white mountains and and those are our rescue missions um but yeah it's 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 often hard you know the appalachian mountain club often steps in you know because they're often up there you know in the huts and higher summits to kind of help out but you, you know depending on the time of year it could take a while for for rescuers to get to you uh the observers don't really support um you know rescue missions directly um they're really focused on you, you know observing the weather forecasting um of course if there's you know a situation where absolutely called upon um we would partner with mount washington state park you know to really help somebody get down the mountain um and that's really i think the state park's role yep. in search and rescue is you know if an incident happens on mount clay or somewhere near mount washington um you know the the idea is to get them to the state park, you know, stabilize and then get them down the mountain as soon as possible. Good. Yeah. And hopefully we won't have too many of those, um, in the future, but it does unfortunately happen occasionally. Um, but that's, you know, it's, it's good to know. And it's a good reminder for people to, um, you know, not, they have to be self-reliant out there. Absolutely. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Look at, look at the hike safe program, know your 10 essentials, tell people where you're going, um, and you know, it, one of the greatest ways to learn about this, you guys have hosted Ty Gagne on here, which is awesome. That was a great podcast, but, mm. uh, his two books, um, the last traverse and then, um, where you'll find me. Yeah. Thank you. Are just incredible, insightful, you know, ways to just look at and learn about, you, you know, how things, how decision-making has sometimes caused people to, to get in harm's way. Yeah. Excellent. All right. So listeners, we're all going to do Seek the Peak <laughs> on July 15th <laughs> and help great. the observatory raise funds for all of their missions. And then in addition to that, Charlie, you can you can sign up for membership for the observatory, right? An annual membership? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You can go to mountwashington.org and contribute $5 a month um, and or $60 a year. And then you get the benefits of our membership, which includes a subscription to our member journal, which is called Windswept, where we include stories about our observers, the work they do, you know, weather trends, uh, weather stories, and just an overall update on the mountain, plus um, admission to our museum, uh, a discount on our, our shop on mountwashington.org, um, and also access to like 300 science museums uh, through the ASTC program. So there's some cool benefits there. Awesome. And then there's also an online store where you can buy gear, right? Yeah, yeah, we've got, uh, if you go to mountwashington.org, right on the top right, there's a, a shop button. Um, so, yeah, definitely some some cool stuff there. All right, well, the That's observers great. are coming out of the winter. We've got the opening this weekend. Me and Stomp are going to be on the Mount Washington Auto. Oh, well, yeah, Alton Weagle coming up uh, this weekend, mm -hmm. too, I think. And then we've got the Mount Washington Road Race. We've got the various bicycle races and all the different rides. So this is the busy time of the year for the summit. <laughs> so um, the quiet, peaceful observatory experience is going to change quite a bit in the next couple of months, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. I think it's uh, 
you know, they're all taking a, a, a deep breath tonight, knowing that, you know, everything opens up tomorrow and all of a sudden going to have uh, a thousand people on the summit each day oh, about. No <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so Charlie, can you, um, can you get us to the front of the, the line when people are going to take a picture at the summit sign? <laughs> we drop your name. I could absolutely. Yeah. Put a word in. Definitely. <laughs> that's funny. Part of me. Part of me. I've always said like, that's always like the, a common complaint is the hikers are like, well, if I hiked up, I should be able to cut the line and go straight to the sign. And then, you know, the people that want visiting and on the cars <laughs> and funny. You get, you, there's enough, you know, I actually enjoy standing in the line. I've met people, you know, you have a conversation sometimes, you know, you can, if you run into someone that took the cog up and you tell them you walked up, they're like, you look like a hero. So it's an ego boost. So yeah. Everybody yeah. Yeah. Line. You, you hiked up this. Yeah, you're crazy. <laughs> I've had that before. So, <laughs> um, so Charlie, we'll let you go have dinner in a moment, but I did want to close out with, um, we want to talk about the cats a little bit. So you've got Nimbus. That's the current, uh, summit cat up there um in the past have you always just had one cat or is it was it multiple cats up there in the past yeah so it's a long-standing tradition to have a resident cat at the summit before nimbus it was marty yeah and marty was up there i think i don't know for a long time i yes. forget how, how many years um wow. but yeah um and i think that there definitely has been times when there's been multiple cats um, right now, I think we're, we're feeling good about one, um, <laughs> just to kind of take really good care of Nimbus and, um, he's kind of getting more comfortable with going outside these days. Of course, the weather's oh, changing neat. and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but yeah, long history, uh, just, you know, going up there in the 1930s and forties and, you know, taking supplies up with packboard and, you know, not wanting to have all of, you know, your supplies, you know, eaten through by mice. Um, the cats have always oh, been great mousers true, and helpful true. to us an important part of our staff. <laughs> That's clever. Wow. Yeah. Never thought yeah. of that. Yeah. That is yeah. interesting. Well, anything else, Charlie, did we miss anything? Stop any questions? I had one question. Um, we're all familiar with the stories of um, the early structures up there getting blown away. And if you go up there now, you see the old house with the big giant chains holding it down. Has there been a more recent story of, say, any form of like structural failure or anything that got you guys or the observers a little nervous inside there with the weather? I mean, I think the most recent example... Uh, which you guys probably know about and some of your listeners do too, was that February 3rd and 4th record cold. Um, yeah. The One of the doors um, on the tower, uh, the ex one of the exterior doors has a, a small latch. And I think our two observers who were on duty at the time, uh, Francis Terrazowitz and Carl Filipov, great guys, um, mm. they were up a level and opening the door to go out onto the observation deck and kind of created a vacuum and the latch just broke the door flew open oh, wow. and so at that point you know there was you know negative 40 <laughs> degree air just like blowing into the into the tower so it was definitely a critical situation um no kidding. and wow. you know the state park guys came over helped us you know essentially prop it closed you know with the two by four um until they were able to kind of like fix the latch but i think that definitely um created some some major anxiety but thankfully everybody was able to work together and and correct the situation yeah wow do you know like how thick are the walls i mean is it all concrete and concrete rebar how what is it is, is okay. yeah it, and it's i think it's like you know three to foot 
three to four foot thick concrete um, <laughs> kind of built to withstand like 250 300 mile per hour winds. Um, yeah, it's like a military bunker. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah wow. definitely. Well, thank you for that because I was always curious about that. I'm like, wow, that must have been built to withstand whatever, you know? Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Well, well, Charlie, thank you so much for joining us and um, we'll definitely include all the details in uh, our show notes around the ways that people can support the observatory and then we're going to be putting in a plug later on for uh, Seek the Peak again and we'll be continue to push that over the coming weeks. Um, but uh, we appreciate you joining us and we'll let you head out of here and go enjoy your dinner. Thank you, Mike and Stomp. You guys are the best. I love the podcast, so please keep <laughs> it going. Good. And uh, thanks for all your support of the observatory. And yeah, just head over to seekthepeak.org. And uh, if you have any questions, just give us a call over here at the Ops. All right. Thanks, awesome. Charlie. We'll see. All we'll right. do it again. All right. Sounds all right, good. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right, Bye-bye. Moving on, shall we? Moving on. Yeah. Thank you very much, Charlie. So we skipped over um, coffee donations. Let's start. Yeah, we skipped over all that stuff. So we got to do some advertisers too. So go ahead. Yeah. So we have a couple donations. Uh, Someone who knows who that is donated three, saying they love the show. Uh, Mr. Huck, John Huck, donated five coffees. Thank you, John. Uh, Bob L. donated five. And then the Griffins donated three coffees, and they said that they love the addition of the Mount Washington Observatory forecast to the show. So that's very cool. Thanks for the donations, everybody. And um, our first sponsor is 48 Peaks Alzheimer's. Hike to fight Alzheimer's with 48 Peaks. Join over 450 hikers this summer as we hike New Hampshire's 4,000 footers or create your own hiking adventure from a 52 with a view to a Prezi Traverse or climb your favorite mountain. Weather permitting, teams will be hiking June 10th so they can join us for our annual hiker celebration party at Reckless Brewing. And you're welcome to join us. Go to alts.org right slash 48 peaks. That's alz.org right slash 48 the number 48 peaks for all the details and then we have stop stop you're gonna you before you go into the next one you're gonna be at reckless on the 10th yes sir i'll be there around three-ish uh playing music and um emceeing more or less so all right i'm I'm coming too so i'll see you there so great yeah i'm hoping the weather's good so we can get out back where we did the uh hundred uh hundred thousand show at the pine house yeah, which would be good. I'm pretty sure I'm going. I have a graduation party to go to that weekend, but I think Reckless is on a Saturday and then the grad party's on a Sunday. So we'll be we'll be party and stomp. Awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. That'll be a nice time. Yeah. All right. Vaucluse gear. Want ventilation and less sweat on your back when backpacking? Check out Vaucluse's backpack ventilation gear. Back sweat sucks in all types of weather and hikes. It's uncomfortable and a risk factor causing your core temperature to fluctuate if it doesn't evaporate off your back. Vaucluse's ultralight ventilation backpack frame is an accessory that installs in your favorite 18 liter to 55 liter pack, creating a ventilating airflow gap between you and your pack. Uh, they're releasing their Generation 2 frame right now. It weighs only 4 ounces, which is pretty light, and uh, handles the heaviest pack loads. So whether you're in hot or cold temps or have a pack with a curved frame, the ultralight ventilation backpack frame is a real game changer. And I've seen these things like selling like hotcakes. I'm seeing them all over the web. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's I, great. I, um, 
so Carol, I went hiking with my daughter, Caroline and her boyfriend, Devin and um, Caroline got to use hers for the first time. Yep. And she was like, she loved it. She's like, first of all, like I didn't even, she's like, I didn't even feel it, but she's like, I definitely didn't feel sweat. I, I was hiking and like, I was moving pretty good, like not, not, no sweat at all. And then what I would do is with this thing, when you're using it is you, it basically gives you like what a half inch of, um, separation. Mm-hmm. And then if you're up above tree line and you're in a windy situation, like you, and you're standing still hanging out, like just angle yourself so that the wind is sort of like blowing between your pack and your back and it's going to even you know you're not that you're sweating at all anyway but it's going to cool you back off even more so for the amount of money that this thing costs and the benefit that it gives you and it doesn't weigh anything it's it's a no-brainer for people especially like the winter hiking it's good but uh, you know these day packs it's a perfect perfect use case for it yeah so by the time you take your pack off the stop and eat your lunch you're dry already back there more or less you know, you never even sweat in the first place. It's it's unbelievable, and it's also like once it locks in, I even have to think about it. It's it's going to be on there for the rest of the summer. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. So, yeah, you can visit um, vaucluseGear.com and uh, order the ventilation frame today. And uh, they're a huge fan of the podcast. Thank God, really appreciate their uh, sponsorship. And um, because of that, you can use a promo code uh, slasher for a $10 discount, S-L-A-S-R. So there you go. Very good. Very good. good so talk. stop you drinking anything tonight? Yeah, I do. I got something. It's a, uh, I'm trying to keep the, <laughs> the historic beer talk happening here uh, yeah. while you're losing all your, your weight. <laughs> yeah. I know I'm down 15 pounds. That's amazing. Yeah. Five pounds to go for the goal weight. Wow. And then your goal is to keep it there, maybe? I'm going to build back better, Stomp. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start lifting weights and getting jacked. Make Mike great again. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but, um, but no, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm feeling good. I mean, I feel like I'm running faster and stuff, so it's good. But what are you, uh, what are you drinking? I'm drinking an Austin Street Brewery. Uh, double IPA and it's uh, 8% and I looked it up and it's from a brewer in Portland, Maine and it's not bad, a little bitter unfortunately, so that's not my favorite type of thing It's it tastes more like a single, a regular IPA than it does a double mm. yeah, doubles tend to be a little sweeter but not bad, not bad mm. yeah Excellent, excellent. Well, I will say that I'm going up to Maine tomorrow, I think, mm-hmm. and um, I brought all the alcohol that is needed to make Mai Tais, so you'd be proud. <laughs> nice. It's like dark rum, white rum, yep. uh, orange curacao, and yep. then some syrup. I don't know. I, I don't know. I have the recipe. It's complicated. There's so many different things in there. But yeah, let me know how it tastes. I'd be curious to see what it uh, tastes like. I'll send you some pictures if I do fall off the wagon. So, but okay. I'll be back to the beer. Two more weekends, I'll be back to the beer. So, yeah, there you go. Um, any hikes right. lately? Any hikes? Yeah. So I uh, I had to run some errands. I was doing a little car shopping. I went to check out a car up near um, Haverhill, New Hampshire. So I went over to 
um, Black Mountain with my daughter. My daughter and a boyfriend were with me, uh, kicking around the idea of getting a car, but um, I'm still working on that. But mm. the we did Black Mountain, so I was like, let's just do a 52 with a view. We'll get both of you guys sort of ease back into hiking. You know, Caroline's taking a little bit of time off. She was hiking in Hawaii, but it's a different vibe. So we went to Black Mountain. I didn't do the lime kiln last time I went there. So when you would, you and Mrs. Stomp had gone, I was like, I got to check these out. So we went up to the summit and then uh, headed down, went over to the lime kiln. So these things, we've talked about them before. They're like probably what, like 30 feet tall. And it's like a a kiln that was used to basically uh, turn limestone into like quick lime and whatever they use it mm-hmm. for industrial purposes. So yeah. uh, it's just sitting in the middle of the woods. It's just giant smokestack. That's probably like 30 or 40 feet tall. Beautiful. A little bit of history there. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. So yeah. um, that was cool. I highly recommend that. And then I'll be getting out on, uh, I think Saturday, I'm going to go climb Mount Washington and then uh, probably be doing some local stuff around Maine. Oh, weekend. Saturday you're going up. I think I'm going Saturday. Yeah. Awesome. If oh, you want to meet me, you can meet me. I'm going to lay low. I got the, the rescue vibes, um, but yeah. I appreciate the invite. Um, yeah. I might need a rescue. You never know. Hey. Hey, I'll see you then. <laughs> I'll be no- I'm going to be knocking on the observatory door like, hello. <laughs> I think um, Mr. and Mrs. Stomp are planning Musalak for Friday. Um, oh, great. Which is good. We haven't been up there in quite a while. But yeah, have fun. That, that'd be great. The weather's going to be awesome. Yeah. Uh, you, you got out, um, you were over in Waterville. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Friday, we zi- last Friday, we zipped up to Timber Camp. Um, we were hemming and hawing about going to Greeley, but we really like it up there. It's very remote and it's got a neat vibe it's got a western vibe out there i love it yeah it's super cool um i don't know i'm still planning to do my little uh mount um kangamangus bushwhack i I did some more recon while i was up there but uh saturday was rough we had um a training and then there was a rescue uh that that evening and I'm telling you, dude, I've, I was so exhausted. I think I was just dehydrated. It took me until, say, like Tuesday or Wednesday before I could even run again from Mount Washington. I was yeah. wiped. It was so weird. I had like an illness or, uh, over the weekend. I was all like coughing and stuffed up and stuff. So mm-hmm. I, I had like something weird too. Same type of thing. Like I ran on Monday and I was like not feeling it whatsoever. And then yeah. uh, t- Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, it's been, it's been better. But that's yeah, good. Hopefully you'll turn the corner. Yeah, yeah. Well, midweek, Thursday, I got back into it and I felt much better. Yeah. But this running thing's a mind blender, dude. It's like it's it's two steps forward, one step back so frequently. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. It's just like consistency. You got to get out there. It's yeah. just, it's rough sometimes. But yeah. um, why don't we put a pin in the notable hikes? We'll push that to next week. And then uh, you want to do a segment about uh, some gems in the Waterville Valley area? Yeah, I did some research. Um, my intention for the summer is really to get out and do some backpacking some in some areas that we haven't covered really at all, whether it be down mm-hmm. south or up north, north country. But until I get to do that, I figured, you know what, let me hone in on Waterville one more time, do some digging and see if there's anything that might be different that people haven't heard of. I'm sure people have heard of some of these, but maybe they forgot and it's uh, worth a revisit. So here are 10 that I came up with that are really worth the visit. And um, 
more or less you can avoid the big crowds, uh, unlike the 48 and whatever yep. else. So, uh, number one, Fletcher Cascade. Um, this is off of Drake's Brook Trailhead, which is off of Route 49, exit 28. It's, um, it's a short mileage hike that gets you to a really large uh, band of cascades. And at the very top of this, you get this beautiful view of the valley. And it's particularly nice after a heavy rain or in the spring. So that's a really nice hike. Uh, have you ever been up there, Mike? I haven't. None, haven't even heard of it, actually. So, um, okay. uh, yeah, it's all new to me. Yep. So, Drake's Brook is where you can go up to Jennings Peak um, or Sandwich Dome. So, it's a little spur off of that area. So, check it out. It's on the, it's on one of the sides of Flat Mountain. Let's put it that way. So, okay. It's number two, Norway Rapids. Um, this is a beautiful basin-like place where people go swimming and uh, take a nice cold dip. And this is off of Livermore Trailhead. Uh, so basically you're hiking Livermore to Cascade Path and then you take the Norway Rapids Trail. And it looks sort of uh, squarish, rectangular-ish and uh, it's a nice little spot to go check out. Number three. Yeah, another one I haven't heard of, Stomp, so I'm impressed. All right, we're on a roll. You've heard of this yeah. next one. Number three is East Ponds Loop. Yep. Have you done this one? I haven't, but I'm aware of it. Okay, so this is one of uh, our favorites, and this is off Tripoli Road, which, as you know, is open now. It's sort of uh, in the middle of the uh, the traverse of Tripoli Road, and at the East Ponds Loop trailhead it's a 4.8 mile loop and you pass two uh, beautiful mountain ponds and they are really beautiful. They're on the, the, so the, the lower edge of the Scar Ridge, the Scar Ridge peaks. And you can do it uh, counterclockwise or clockwise, depending on which one you want to do. And uh, this is a really beautiful hike, short miles, you know, if you're doing an out and back uh, and definitely a place to go visit in the fall with the foliage. Okay. Absolutely beautiful. I did want to throw in a bushwhacker too. So here's one that um, you're always throwing in a bushwhacker too. Well, here's what's funny. It's like when you when people think Waterville, they think okay, Tecumseh, Osceola. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They think it's very little, but if you look four corners, you're talking about Sandwich Dome, the Weedamoo's, Welch Dickey, then all the way way over the Cape Sleeper bypass of Conway. This is a massive area. Yeah, and I think a lot of people like they they assume those peaks are approached from the where you get the four thousand footers of the fifty two with the views, but yeah. like really Waterville is the coming in from Waterville is the opposite direction, the sort of the path less traveled in a lot of these situations. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, less yeah. less crowds, less traffic. Yeah. It's really neat. Uh, but so yeah, Fool Killer. This is a small sub peak just below the Tri Pyramids on the Oh, is it the tri- is it the Kangamanga side? I believe it's the Kangamanga side. Um, it is, yeah. So yeah. when you go, um, so Sabaday um, Falls, and yeah. then it extends into Sabaday Brook Trail. I've been over here in the winter, and it was so tempting, like because you 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 sort of on Sabaday Brook Trail, you come so close to the Fool Killer. But we were right. kind of on a mission that day to get. You know, it was going to be a long hike out Pine Bend, so we didn't do it. But um, certainly sure. in the summertime, I don't think it's unreasonable to do that loop as a, you know, Saturday Brook out to the Fool Killer, Tri Pyramids, and then out Pine Bend is, is definitely doable in a day. Mm, yeah, this was one of my first bushwhacks, actually. So basically up 
Sabaday Falls Trail at 2,700 feet, there's a sharp 90 degree turn um, that crosses over the brook. And at that point, you can just bushwhack straight up to the summit register. It's maybe another five or six hundred feet up, and there's a nice register up top. Um, neat bit of history there. Um, in the early settling days, people would try to get to the Tri-Pyramids, and they would summit the Fool Killer, thinking that was the summit of the Tri-Pyramids, and it wasn't the case. Nobody's died there uh, historically, as far as I know, but that's a really nice, uh, modest bushwhack off of Sabaday. Number five, Greeley Ponds. I have to mention it again because it is stunning. Again, it's beautiful out there. We're going to have to rename this Mr. and Mrs. Stomp Pond. <laughs> yeah, it's getting there. Uh, we're, that's in our bucket list is to get out to Greeley. Yeah. She hasn't yet to see it. I've seen it once and it's mind blowing. Yeah. So what's nice about these ponds, you're surrounded um, by several cliffs. You have Greeley Cliffs, you have the the cliffs on Mount Kangamangas, titled K1 and K2, and then just below East Osceola, you have the Painted Cliff, which is the most unusual thing I've ever seen in the Whites. It's just a big cliff wall, but it's uh, circular and reddish, and it looks like something you'd see out west or in the desert. It's very, very cool. So this one you can get to uh, via the Kangamangas, which is the shorter method, or you can start at the Livermore Trailhead. Uh, as a point-to-point traverse, you're talking about 5.3 miles total. Okay. Uh, yeah. So from Livermore Trailhead to Upper Greeley Pond, it's 3.9 miles. So that's the the difference uh, to the Kang. So. Okay. But gentle, nothing too crazy. Here's one that we don't hear of too often. Number six, Flat Mountain Pond and Shelter. Um, There are two approaches and they come in from the Sandwich side. So Sandwich, the town of Sandwich, which is closer to, say, Ferncroft, your access to Mm -hmm. um, Whiteface and Pass Conway and all that. But this is a high mountain pond at 2320 and there's a beautiful shelter up there. If you're doing your research for this one, look for the Whiteface Intervale Road, uh, which is the eastern exit, or the Bennett Street Gate, which is the western. Uh, The shelter itself is located at the south end of the pond, and there is a bushwhack up to uh, the northwest over Flat Mountain, which would essentially take you back over to Fletcher Cascade, which we had just talked about. And and then there's another uh, Flat Mountain peak there as well, which are both on the highest 500 list. Nice area. Yeah, it is a nice area. And, and basically, like if you're hiking Sandwich Dome from, I'm familiar from Sandwich Dome, but one thing I will say is that if you're going to go on a weekend, just ex- don't be surprised. Like there can be crowds there because it's not a long hike to get in there and it's not a lot of elevation. So sometimes you'll get some some crowds in there. Um, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's like anywhere else with shelters, but I think this one's a little bit, it's accessible from the, the Livermore side, so... Oh, not the Livermore side from the um, from the south, the Ferncroft area. Okay. All right, number seven, Noon Peak. So people that have gone up to Jennings or Sandwich Dome may know this peak, but if you're looking for a shorter round trip of three point two miles uh, hike, Noon Peak is phenomenal. It's it's right off of the same area. You could start at Drake's Brook, the same spot where you would go in to to see uh, Fletcher Cascade. And this takes you up to a beautiful series of flattish, open, um, 
couple scrambles here and there, but literally just flat open granite with just beautiful views of the whites and sandwich dome. And um, it's it's a very steep uh, ascent to get to this area, but uh, what a great payoff. So that's one you can do some research on. And if you are motivated, you can continue on to Jennings and Sandwich Dome, of course, as well. Number eight. Here's another sort of bushwhackish slash herd pathish <laughs> traverse. So Acteon Ridge off of 49. It's uh, some of it's advanced in terms of bushwhacking, um, but to get to say the, the Route 49 side um, bald knob, that's not too bad at all. It takes a little bit of research to to find out how to get into these areas. Uh, Sachin Peak as well. If you're starting on 49, uh, you can head right up to Bald. And essentially, there's the Smarts Brook Trailhead, which people are pretty familiar with. And you're taking the Yellow Jacket Trail. The first footbridge, that's where you want to look at going up uh, stream, following a little brook. And that's the beginning of the bushwhack. And then from there, you'll actually discover some cairns and some trail markers and things. Um, if you're coming down from Jennings, heading towards Sachem Cliffs, um, so you'd be taking the, the Smarts Brook Trail um, and then jumping off. I forget the elevation exactly, but that'll get you over to Sachem Cliffs, which is pretty neat. Yeah, you love that area, Stomp. Oh, yeah. You introduced me to that uh, last last year, and I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back over there in the summer. Oh, it's awesome. It's super cool. Um, now, number nine, the sleepers. These guys are nestled between the tripyramids and Whiteface, and um, you can access the sleepers pretty directly from Downsbrook, which is off of the Kank. Um, you can make it a little longer by starting at Whiteface or in Waterville itself um, by taking the South Tripyramid uh, route up to South Tripyramid and then grabbing them. Uh, it's just, uh, it's really neat. They're, they're long and very remote and just very, very, very beautiful, very scenic. So Kate Sleeper trail. And then last but not least, number 10 is the Algonquin. Uh, this is, it's a long one. You and I did it last year mm-hmm. and uh, it's beautiful. You can access Algonquin Trail from Sandwich Notch Road or again from Drake's Brook. A lot of, lot of starts at Drake's Brook. Uh, the Sandwich Mountain Trail. It, the full range of easy to difficult with amazing views of Black Mountain, Welch Dickey, Guinea Pond, and Acteon Ridge. Guinea Pond's another neat one because that whole side of Acteon, I mean, not Acteon, Algonquin, connects over to Flat Mountain, if I'm not uh, mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Stomp, so. I, you've definitely opened my eyes up to this area a lot more. Like you, I know you'd always talk about it, and I would be like, "Well, yeah, it's it sounds okay." But like when I got in there, I was really impressed. And I think between you know the the approaches from Livermore and then the approaches from that Algonquin Noon Peak area, like there's just in Flat Pond and Sandwich, there's so much so much ground to cover over there. Mm, yeah. So enjoy. And, no uh, crowds. Yeah, let's uh, let's expand the horizons. You know, my yeah. my goal is to really get out there a little further away from the uh, comfortable home neighborhood here. Yeah, definitely. So, all right. I'll include all of these as a list in the show notes so people can do some some research and then just you know if you got questions, hit up the Instagram account. Stomp loves chatting. 
<laughs> sure. Yeah. I sure do. Excellent. All right. So we have one more uh, sponsor and then we're getting into search and rescue. So Bay Slate Coasters. They create unique, beautiful, functional, and expertly laser-engraved coasters with topographic maps of the 4,000-footers of New Hampshire more. These coasters are handmade on Cape Cod from slate, quarried in the United States, and provide a durable and heat-resistant surface for your drinks. Each coaster features intricate detailing of any mountain topography for the location of your choice. So base slate coasters will work with you on your custom hand-designed coasters for any street or topographic map. Let's just say anywhere on earth or beyond. Visit bayslate.com today to explore a full range of topographic map coasters and use the code SLASHER10 at checkout for 10% off your first order. That's S-L-A-S-R-10. Excellent, excellent stop. So Bay Slate Coasters, it's a great, uh, great option for people if they're looking to give a gift. Oh, absolutely. For Father's Day, that's probably a great idea. Yeah, I might have to drop a reminder to somebody. <laughs> that, so that's a good idea. search and rescue news stomp so um i got we got two national stories so you pulled these so i may ask your help for them but this first one's a national uh, uh, a story two hikers um passed away um slot canyon yeah so they died in a rushing wall of water after flood carried them down um a Utah Canyon for miles. So it looks like two older gentlemen here. So they were found dead after flash flooding carried them down a canyon. Um, Kane County Sheriff's Office said it received a call on Sunday, May 21st about a group hiking in the Pariah River or Paria River on their way to Lee Ferry, Lee's Ferry when they found a dead man in the canyon. Um, he was south of the junction of the Paria River in Buckskin Gulch, about a half mile into Arizona. So right mm-hmm. on the right on the line there. It's a very rugged area there. I've been out there a couple times, and it's it's you do not mess around with the flash flooding there. But the Arizona authorities joined the recovery efforts along with the sheriff's office and Utah Department of Public Safety. Uh, the man had no ID on him, so deputies said they began looking at vehicles at the various trailheads to figure out who he was. The next day. Um, sheriff's office got a call about two overdue hikers from an Ohio police department. So the men's family said they'd not spoken to the two gentlemen since Saturday afternoon. They intended to hike five miles into wire pass in the buckskin gulch. So, um, Photos from the family confirmed that the man found uh, dead in Pariah was a 65-year-old gentleman from Westchester Township, Ohio. Um, SAR teams began combing the Buckskin Gulch area and unfortunately found the other missing man, a 72-year-old man from Kettering, Ohio, um, deceased as well. So downstream towards the junction with the Pariah River, um, they found the, the second man's body. So... Uh, the sheriff's office said the investigation showed that while the men were hiking, they were caught by surprise and swept away by the rush, rushing water of uh, rushing wall of water. So uh, they were carried about ten miles down the canyon. Well, one of them was carried about ten miles, and the other was carried seven or eight miles. So that's terrifying, crazy story. 
I know, and it happens so frequently there. So I have a, you know, I guess Bearskin Gulch is 16 miles. So how do you say, I'm going to go do this hike? How do you prepare for it? How do you prepare for this other than looking at the weather and hoping for the best? It's I don't so- know. I get claustrophobic just thinking about like getting, I have a little bit, I mean, when I was in Sedona, like Oak Creek, like you could certainly, you know, you could see like you'd be in the creek and you could look over to the right and the left and you could see like the damage from the flash floods that come through that are like, it turns a creek that's like literally the size of like maybe your arm length that you're walking in and around. It turns it into like the Merrimack River distance, like within, you know, but it's a couple times a year. And, but if you get caught, you know, the once the wrong time at the wrong time, then you're in big trouble. So like that sounds like that's what happened. Yeah. Yeah. I am really curious though, like, are there strategies to help yourself if you find yourself in this situation? I don't know, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's unfortunate. Um, all right. So moving into the Adirondack. So Rangers rescue hikers lost on dark, snowy Adirondack trail. Um, they also force illegal dumpers to clean up a mess. So let's see what Mm. this is all about. So May 20th, hiking party of three activated an emergency beacon on Phelps Trail uh, east of Little Marcy in the Adirondacks. So they couldn't make phone contact. Um, So uh, the Environmental Conservation, those Department of Environmental Conservation Forest Rangers set out to find them. They were able to reach them at 1 a.m. about six miles Five days into ago. Into a hike. Yeah, this is five days ago. So uh, the rangers found the disoriented hikers on the trail. After treating the hikers for mild hypothermia, the rangers helped carry their gear down the mountain. And by the morning, they had reached Johns Brook Outpost where the rangers continued to warm them up um, before getting to the trailhead. So I guess they were okay. They just had mild hypothermia. And then when the rangers got there, they were able to treat them to the point where they could hike out. Mm. Um they were on a three-day trip, but they didn't check the weather forecast or turn around when they encountered more snow than they could handle. So, um, four the, feet. Yeah, yeah. That's so the the Forest Service is encouraging hikers to check the weather forecast and know their limitations. Um, so, I guess at the same time here, or maybe this is a s- yeah. separate report. I'm not sure if we need to cover that. But okay, people are yeah. making a so, mess. So yeah, somebody somebody dumped trash in the Adirondacks. Don't do that. Yeah, um, <laughs> going local, going local. So we got two local uh, rescues here. So injured hiker on Gorge Brook Trail in Benton. So um, I think this was on. Yeah, this is the day that we were hiking. Matter of fact, I was looking over at Musilaki and it was like completely like socked in by clouds. There was no views to be had that day. So <laughs> right. It was ridiculous, but, uh, and it was sad. It was weird because like all the other summits were clear, but like the, there was just like clouds stuck to Musilaki. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know why, but, um, around two fifteen on Saturday, May 20th, fishing game was alerted to an injured hiker, a little up over two miles up Gorgebrook trail from the ravine lodge in Woodstock. So the report came through the 911 from the hiking party saying one of their members had suffered a lower leg injury and couldn't continue. So rescue team comprised of conservation officers and 15 volunteers from Pemi Search and Rescue well, were staged at Ravine Lodge. And by 4.30, the first rescuers had arrived on the scene. Um, so it looks like the injured hiker was packaged up in a litter and carried about two miles to the lodge. So call came in at 2.15. They got to the hiker at... 
uh, 4.30 and then uh, arrived at 7 back at the ambulance. So 25-year-old gentleman from Lynn, Massachusetts. So that's ironic. We were just talking Lynn, about Lynn, Lynn last week. Yeah, Lynn, Lynn. Um, novice yeah, hiker and had slipped. One. Yeah. Quick turnaround. Yeah. 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 Not bad. But you're right, though. The weather that day was pretty cool and chilly and oh the rain was coming in that afternoon in the afternoon yeah, 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 yeah. It, i think it didn't come in until like what four o'clock or something yeah yeah but not great conditions if you're sitting there on the side of a mountain waiting for people yeah you know yeah it was like um how would i describe it i would just say like i don't know overcast yeah dreary dreary that's a good one dreary <laughs> All right. So the next one, again, dreary weather in this one. So rescued hiker on Mount Conway. So this is an interesting one stop because oh, I was reading this one and this was an experienced hiker that was well prepared. But um, unfortunately, because of a fall into a brook, all of her gear got wet. So we'll talk about this one. So right. um, yeah. 6.30 p.m. on Saturday, Fishing Game responded uh, to a call for assistance from a stranded hiker on the Dicey's Mill Trail, approximately a half mile from the summit of Mount Conway. So um, this hiker, 28 years old from Fall River, Massachusetts, was hiking with her dog when she called 911 for assistance. So this hiker had departed early that morning from Route 112 and had hiked the Downsbrook Trail Trail to Mount Tripyramid and then over to Mount Whiteface and then she encountered snow and rain during her hike. The hiker had several brook crossings, one of which she fell into, which resulted in her backpack and all of her equipment becoming saturated. So she was on the Dicey's Mill Trail near Mount Conway when she attempted to set up her tent and stay warm in her sleeping bag, but she couldn't get the tent set up properly and became concerned due to the increased rain. I mean, that must be just demoralizing if everything is wet and you're trying to set it up and it's just, I can imagine, mm. so... Um, yeah. She did the right thing, called for assistance, and um, you know, six thirty the call came in. They they talked with uh, with her on the phone, and it was determined the best course of action was to hike to her location and assist her. So they were able to get to her location around, I guess, at, at night. Um, and I guess she made it all the way back to the trailhead by 11.35. So they, the fishing game said she was well-prepared for the right. conditions, experienced hiker that had planned for the weather and an extended stay. Uh, she had all the 10 essentials, including rain gear and everything she needed, sleeping bag, tent, et cetera, but she did not expect to fall in the brook. And then, then all of her equipment became wet and she got concerned for her safety. So yeah. it was a good call that... Um, you know, she made the call and ultimately, you know, the whole situation would have been worse if she didn't have that equipment, but Absolutely. it's an interesting stomp is like everything just went south. Yep. That, just like that. Boom. Yeah. So any solutions? I mean, the best thing that I heard is that people just basically said like, look, you know, put your stuff, if, if there's any hint of brook crossings or rain or snow that might get your backpack wet and the gear inside of it, like, um, use a compact, a trash compactor bag and put everything inside mm. the, the trash compactor bag inside the backpack. So you've got double peace of mind. Yeah, or yeah, or a dry bag. I think they sell them for yeah. pretty cheap at Walmart and they're light. Yeah. 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 I think, I mean, I think that the, the Dyneema backpacks as well are a little bit more resilient. So it's worth spending a little bit extra money to get one of those, you know, heavy duty Dyneema bags that are generally pretty waterproof. Uh, mm -hmm. But even those aren't a hundred percent. So I think the compactor bag, the tr those those heavy duty trash compactor bags to 
keep your critical gear dry or, or dry bag, whatever you, whatever works, I would suggest. Yeah. So that's great for when there's rain forecast, but if you're approaching areas with a lot of crossings or higher water with the risk of falling in is, is higher, perhaps even storing a bivy, you know, one of those small handheld bivvies in a waterproof bag, just in case you are waiting for a search and rescue and you need to get some body warmth without necessarily hmm, staying longer. Um, yeah. But interesting story for sure it is it is glad that she made it out stomp and i think that we're gonna make it out of here um with episode 107 and call this wrap it's a wrap happy memorial day happy memorial day everybody stay safe out there i know everyone wants to meet stomp but don't meet him on a rescue (laughs) that's right i'll be looking for you (laughs) next time okay bye-bye bye Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered in today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information at slasherpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until then, on behalf of Mike and Stomp, get out there and crush some mega peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fishing game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots, and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Neeland, New Hampshire Fishing Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? It seems to me the most common is being unprepared. And I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all. 